What's going on? I'm Rich Demiro. This is Rich on Tech, trying something just a little different this time around. So let me know what you think of it, whether you like it, you hate it, or you want more. Uh, this is going to be kind of a roundup of some of the things that are happening in the tech world, just some stories that I come across in my daily research that I think are interesting and you should know about. So let's just get right into it and start with the Google Pixel 3. All of the reviews are out, the embargo has been lifted, and we're getting a lot of different opinions on this phone, but they all seem to center around the same thing. The camera, of course, is amazing. There are little tweaks, little things that have been improved, and of course, there are some things that people don't like, most notably the notch. Everyone's going crazy over that. Now, personally, I've been testing the smaller of the two, the Google Pixel 3. I will say that Google has improved pretty much everything that I had a problem with personally on the last devices. So for me, it was mainly the fact that I could not use this as a content creation tool because it did not have the ability to have an external mic input on the native camera app. And I am very excited to announce that yes, you can finally use an external mic input on the video camera. Now, for most people, that's not a big deal, but for me it is, and I also think it's a bigger deal in the scheme of things, because think about it. When you think about all these YouTubers, what phone are they using? They're all using the iPhone, because they're plugging accessories in, they're recording themselves, they're vlogging, and if you try out a Pixel and you realize that you can't do these things with it, well, guess what? You're not really gonna use it much. So in my day-to-day, -day, um, I will say that I found that the phone is a bit laggy, which is kinda odd, and I feel like it wasn't laggy before. So maybe in the next couple of days when Google puts out their big software update for day one of the Pixel, some of those things will be fixed. But I actually had to reformat my device. So I set it up when I was in New York when I got it. And then when I got home, I, I just could not deal with what kind of like the jumpiness that was happening on it. And so I ended up uh, wiping it clean. And instead of doing a restore for my old device, my old Android, I just ended up installing everything again, which is kind of a pain because you have to log into every app and download every app and set up your home screens and go through every single alarm and every single setting and redo it all. And I don't particularly like doing that every single time, but I felt like I wanted to give this thing the full benefit of the doubt and see if it was something that got transferred over that was kind of weird or if it was the actual device. I would say I'm getting less of the problem now, but it's still a little bit jumpy compared to uh, the way I think it should be, and I think that uh, hopefully that will be improved. But otherwise, so what can I say about the Pixel? I mean, personally, I think I'm gonna start recommending this device more so than ever, because I find that it really does everything you need. And I think the camera is really amazing, the software is nice and polished, the apps, they leave a little bit to be desired. I know that's not Google's fault, but when you look at what you can accomplish on the apps on the iPhone, they're just better. I mean, almost every single app that is made by a big company outside of Google. So when you look at Google apps, those are all better on Android when it comes to Gmail, when it comes to things like Google Voice, when it comes to Google Photos, Calendar, Maps, all of those things are better um, on the Android. But when it comes to these other apps like Instagram and Twitter, even something like Audible, which I use for my audiobooks. Spotify, kind of on the fence. I think that works very similar on both of them. Yelp, pretty similar. Netflix, pretty similar. Uh, YouTube, obviously a Google, Google app, so that's going to work better. Uh, the one app that I have a major problem with is Facebook. Uh, I use Creator on the iPhone, and it's just amazing if you want to keep in touch with people, keep in touch with your fans. Um, Facebook Pages is terrible on the Android, and so is the Creator port. So 
to me, and again, I'm coming from sort of the content creator journalism kind of world where I am looking to do content creation on my devices. So for the average person, probably the camera is gonna be the most important aspect and some of these other apps, but I understand when it comes from switching to the Android platform from the iOS platform, it's tough. And especially giving up things like FaceTime and iMessage, iMessage, you can you can basically iMessage almost anyone in the world, right? Because they seem to be on there. And when it comes to Android, it's like, you know, when I go to text someone, I'm not really sure which number is the right one. On iOS, it just sort of highlights in blue the number that's the right one for them to get to get to their iMessage, and that's really helpful. I just find that I kind of miss that when I'm using my Android device. So not a deal breaker, but it's definitely one of those things that does make life a little more complicated. Um, And then FaceTime, of course, you know, my entire family is on iPhone back in New Jersey. And, you know, I'm not, it's really tough to get them to download Duo. I was talking to someone at work today and he was joking that, you know, who's on Duo? You know, like, well, who do you, who says Duo me? No one, that that never comes up. Um, Taking a look at some of the headlines on Tech Meme. So, I mean, The Verge saying the best camera gets a better phone with a far better screen, loudspeakers, but the notch is doofy. Um, I I don't know. I don't have the one with the notch, so I really can't talk much about that. I don't find the notches on any other device has ever bothered me, so it's really not that big of a deal. The screen is definitely better. Um, The phone, you know, here's the thing. I, I call this a sort of boring device, and it kind of is. It's not the most exciting device out there, but... It's, it's like a quiet confidence, like I've said before in my previous podcast. It's just one of these things that it works. The pictures are pretty amazing. The software works overall. And it's just one of these devices that just kind of, um, you don't have to think much about it. Can you do as many of the crazy cool things you can do on the iPhone? Probably not. But in other aspects, it does really cool things like the call screening feature. So generally, um, I'm always kind of avoiding those calls, which I kind of still believe you should. Because if you think about it, when you get scam calls and spam calls and robocalls, I've always recommended to people to never pick them up. Because if you pick them up, it signifies to them that your phone number is live, right? And I'm sure if these people have these computer systems, maybe they're not that sophisticated to know that, okay, this number picked up, let's hammer them now with a lot more calls. Maybe they're not that smart. But to me, it seems like they probably are. And I've noticed, you know, I get a couple of these robocalls, you know, every couple of days and I've been using the screen, the call screen feature on the Pixel and it's actually kind of fun. And I don't mind having the computer pick it up because at least I know if the call is, is a robocall or not and I can kind of decide whether to answer it. So today I had a call that I was unsure of. It came from a number that was near mine and I was like, ah, I don't know, it could be someone that I called, could be a person calling me back. But the other thing on the, on the Pixel is that if you have... You know, basically Pixel has like free caller ID. And if a phone number comes in without any caller ID on it, it's kind of a giveaway that that's going to be a problem. Uh, Let's see, what else? Uh, CNET Pixel 3 XL, a big phone with a fantastic camera and a big notch. Uh, Gizmodo, the other way to make a killer phone. And by that, they're probably alluding to the software versus the hardware because the hardware on the Pixel is not anything special. I mean, I'm happy that they upgraded the processor, but it's not like... It's not like where the iPhone kind of evolves and just gets better and better with all these cool new features. No, it looks almost identical to last year's model. Uh, Gadget says, Google's hardware takes a backseat to software. Android Police says, come for the camera, stay for everything else. Ars Technica says, Google software deserves better than this hardware. I agree. If it was up to me, I would go with the 
Samsung hardware and the Google software. That to me is kind of the killer Android combination. Um, and I remember back in the day I had one of those. I bought, back when uh, Samsung was doing this, they would do a, gosh, I forget what it was called. It was like a, not pure Android, it was vanilla Android. It was, maybe it was pure. And basically they were installing stock Android on a Galaxy device. And I can't remember which one I bought that was it. It was like, you know, 800 bucks or something like that. And I scratched the screen and I was so mad because I really, that was like one of my favorite devices because it had the Google stock software, but it had the beauty of being the Samsung hardware. And I think that uh, Google and and, and uh, Samsung should really think about this a little bit harder because Samsung is just killing it with the hardware and Google is just killing it with the software. So why don't we bring something back like this? I mean, we're trying to compete against iOS and iPhone's dominance and I get it, dominance I mean here in the US. But the reality is why not put everything you got towards that and do something like a stock Android version um, of, a, of a Samsung device. And the other thing, the other idea is why not make the Pixel camera you know, ported officially to these other devices and make it an option? Because it seems like a lot of this stuff is software oriented. People are already porting the camera app to other devices like the Essential and the OnePlus phone. So why not just give these phone makers access to this camera and kind of, I think it would just expand the Android kind of ecosystem in a much better way. Um, and I think more people would, would kind of take it more seriously if they knew they were getting an amazing device that has the hardware, amazing software that has the hardware that they want. One thing that's been kind of hit or miss for me personally on the Pixel 3 is the charging stand. So I actually had to move it away from my bed and into my office because it was just unreliable. So the Pixel charging stand is basically a new wireless charging stand for the Pixel that kind of reacts specifically to it. So when you place your phone on there, um, up pops a special screen that you can kind of set up. So you can have it become a photo frame while you're not using it. You can have it, basically it displays a couple of little assistant one-touch features down below. So you can you know play your favorite playlist, whatever it predicts or thinks that you want to do, those buttons will be right on screen. And I love this. And I love the fact that they added wireless charging to the Pixel 3, but I still think in general, wireless charging is very unreliable because if your phone is off the charger, even by a, a mere like a millimeter, it's like your phone may not charge. And to me, I thought my phone was charging. There was two nights out of like maybe five nights where it, it just didn't charge. And that's very unacceptable. I woke up with a 60% battery, which was basically where I went to sleep on the thing. And it, it, that's a surprise. And I found that I was like trying to recover the whole day. When you don't start with a full battery, you're trying to recover the whole day basically from that battery situation. So I moved the Pixel, the charging stand to my office. So I like my phone on there as kind of a, a place to see it and just kind of have it charging and I can monitor it more. Like I just popped it on there and it's, uh, it says charging rapidly. And the thing that popped up with the assistant is tell me a joke. So I guess it thinks that uh, in the afternoon on a Monday, I want to hear a joke from my phone. So um, that's $80. I definitely recommend it. I mean, if you don't care about the stuff on screen, the special kind of assistant mode that it pops into, you can use any wireless charger with the Pixel. You'll be just fine. But again, personally, I think at, at night bedside, I'm just going with the regular plug-in charge because that to me is more reliable. I know my phone is plugged in. I know it's going to work and I don't really have to think about it. 
But bottom line, and I can't you, you know say 100%, I've only been using the phone for a couple of days, but I will say that for me personally, the Pixel, other than all the little issues that I mentioned when it comes to software and some of the bigger features on it, for me, they have fixed a lot of the stuff that would keep me on the iPhone side. So um, personally, I like the way that the Android operating system is more cohesive than iOS. iOS, I always feel like apps are trying to fit into that whole sandbox that Apple puts them in, which is great for security, but not so good for things like you know, just, just various little tasks that you're trying to do on the iPhone sometimes can be more complicated. I think on the flip side, a lot of things are simpler because of the way they set things up where you know that everything is just kind of sandboxed and that's the way it is, right? So, um, but personally, I will be recommending the Pixel for sure. I think that a lot of people will be happy with it. I'm glad they added headphones. That was another big thing because what a pain just to get a pair of headphones for this thing, right? I mean, USB-C, I get it. Not everyone's plugging in headphones anymore, but the reality is it's nice to have a pair of headphones in the box when you purchase a smartphone. I've been wearing the headphones a lot, even though I have a pair of AirPods that I can pair with my Androids, but I really like the idea of just plugging in the headphones and they work and you go, right? And plus they have assistant built in, which is really nice. So um, I, I think that overall, the, for the price and the features and what you're getting, especially when it comes to the camera, the Pixel is really nice. I think that the iPhone is still the gold standard when it comes to mobile devices, but I think like the Pixel is definitely is definitely giving people a second option, you know, especially with Samsung out there. Samsung is great. But there's some little things I don't like about Samsung, and I think that the Pixel kind of addresses those. And again, like I said, for all the little things they corrected, for me personally, I think that they did a really nice job. And if you can live without the iMessage of the world and the FaceTime of the world and all the amazing app features that come with iOS and all of the slick integration with things like the Apple Watch and you know your computer and your messages, iMessage on computer, all those little things. If you can live without those, the Pixel is kind of a nice alt. Now let's move on to a phone that's making a comeback, the Palm. They are returning as a uh, sort of a small, what they're calling ultra mobile smartphone. So this is a tiny little palm sized device, literally fits in the palm of your hand. It has just a um, tiny display, 3.3 inches. And this is being now produced by TCL. So that's the big Chinese conglomerate. They have some really popular TVs. They're a big electronics maker. They also own BlackBerry. Um, they also own Alcatel. So all these brands um, in the mobile space, that's the company behind them. But this new little phone is $350 and it's being seen as an accessory. So the common complaint nowadays is that we're all on our phones way too much and on the weekends, and I've had this kind of um, this little theory too, is that you know maybe on the weekends I'd have a secondary phone. You know, have you have you heard of that light phone? It's kind of like that um, phone that just has a dial tone, you know, or so to say. It's just a phone that can dial numbers, right? So no camera, no no MP3 player, no nothing. Now the Palm does have a camera. It does have Android on it, so it is a real phone, but it's not meant to be your primary phone. So you actually, it's exclusive to Verizon and you link it up using, um, I don't know what Verizon calls it, the number share kind of thing, where it's basically you're activating a second line, but it's the same phone number as your primary line. So that's an additional $10 a month. It's kind of like what the Apple Watch does with the iPhone. 
And the Apple Watch Cellular is kind of the closest thing I can think of to this scenario where we're so addicted to our devices, we actually have to rescue ourselves from ourselves, right? So if we're out of sight, out of mind, you don't really think about it as much. So if you're wearing the uh, Apple Watch with the cellular, you can still go out, enjoy your day, enjoy your life with your kids, but also be connected in case of an emergency or if you need a cell phone for anything. The downside to that is that there's no camera on the Apple Watch, and that's one of the main reasons people have a cell phone now on them is we wanna be able to take pictures wherever we go. So this Palm kind of addresses that, but the reality is I find this to be way too complicated. I mean, two different cell phone devices are kind of crazy to have. You're gonna keep swapping them out. You're gonna keep, what, okay, oh wait, I'm going, hold on, let me think where I'm going tonight. Okay, do I wanna take good pictures? Because you know the, the, the camera on this thing is not gonna be very good, right? So um, it, it doesn't even matter what the megapixels are, but the reality is it's a small device. It's not meant as your primary device. Um, it, it's just not going to be as capable as your normal phone, but it's one of those ideas that I can understand why people like the idea of it, right? They like the fantasy of having, um, less distractions in their life, but the reality is we can't go without our phones. You know, it's kind of tough, especially your primary device. And then all of a sudden now you're setting up two different devices. So every time you switch between them, you're thinking, you know, your muscle memory is changing. The way you're using it is changing. You have to think about, Oh, do I need Uber on this device? Yes, okay, is it linked to my Uber account? It's just too much to think about. So I, I don't think this thing is gonna do very well. I think it might have a lot of interest in circles where people talk about it, talk about wanting something like this, but no one's gonna actually get this thing. And $350 is a lot of money for a secondary device. And it's got a very underpowered processor. It's got a, a, a last year's processor. So it, it just doesn't seem like something that a lot of people would get but it seems like something that is solving a problem that we have, but the solution is not very good. So I think the solution in the future will probably be, probably be more kind of connected smartwatches and not something like this. Now, an app that was launched today was really interesting. This is from Adobe, and this is really cool for the content creators out there, including myself. And this is another problem that we have is... You wanna be able to create content on the go. And for me, I always talk about how I'm kinda of locked into using a MacBook Pro, right? Because a MacBook Pro gives me Final Cut and that's the, pro the program that I use to edit my videos, right? Now I'm not sitting there editing crazy amounts of videos, but I do wanna make some things for social media, do a quick, uh, you know, quick cut here and there, maybe add some graphics. Recently I did a story on going to the, um, the Amazon four-star store in New York City. If you haven't watched that, you can find it in the show notes. But you know that did take a lot of horsepower because I edited a whole bunch of stuff on uh, Final Cut. But most of the time, I don't need all that horsepower. And so this Adobe Premiere Rush CC is basically a little tiny app that works across all your platforms. So right now, they're launching it on sort of the iPhone and the iPad, and it's gonna be a desktop app and also on Android. And in the video they show, they show the, um, the social influencer that's using this kind of starting a video on her iPhone and then finishing it on her computer. And I find that really fascinating because that's not a bad idea at all, something that I've never done. And the idea is that these, this um, takes advantage of the cloud. So all of your video, I guess, must go up to the cloud, which takes a while because 
I that video that I did when I was in New York, I shot all my own stuff for the uh, Pixel Three, and I overnighted it in Dropbox to my photographer slash editor in Los Angeles at KTLA, and it was like 35 gigs, and man, did that take a long time. So I don't really know how this is going to work. Maybe if you have short clips, it's not that big of a deal, but. I love this idea. I can't wait to try out this program. Right now, it's only available for iOS, so I have to download it to my iPad. But uh, I'm looking forward to this being across all platforms. It sounds really cool. And a couple of things on the website when it comes to this program, it looked like um, there is a free version of it, but then there is also a uh, paid version. So let's see, share right from the app to your favorite social media platforms. It looks like they have a whole bunch of cool graphics and easy kind of formatting built in for Instagram. So if you wanna do something that's square, you can do that. They've got a bunch of styles, which is really cool. Um, Let's see. Your everything is synced to the cloud, so your latest edit is always at your fingertips, available on iOS, Mac, and Windows. So looks like it's available now on those. Sign up to be notified when it's available on Android. And Premiere Rush is included with Premiere Pro and is part of the Creative Cloud All Apps plan. So if you wanna start for free, you can get three exports, two gigs of cloud storage, and Adobe fonts. If you get the, let's see, Rush single app, I guess you can buy it all by itself with unlimited exports. Let's see how much that is. I wonder if it even tells me. Oh, $10 a month. Okay, so you just have to go. Monthly plan is 10 Oh, I see. So the monthly plan is $10 for that. If you want the all access, I think the Creative Cloud is like $20. So I don't know if you're an influencer and you're doing this kind of stuff, 10 bucks a month is easily worth it if it makes your life um, just a little simpler. Moving on now to Microsoft. So this is the thing. I, I, I get these, these tech support scam kind of emails all the time from people saying that they fell for it and you think that nobody falls for this stuff, but you do. And I thought this was just crazy. Microsoft came out with this little article about how they're going to partner with AARP to kind of stop these scams. But I thought this number was crazy. Each month, Microsoft receives about 11,000 complaints from people across the globe who have been the victim of a tech support scam with fraudsters pretending to be be from reputable tech companies, including Microsoft, Dell, and Apple. 11,000 complaints. That's from people who say they've been victims. So how many people are actually getting these things? And I'm not really sure what the point of this whole article is. I guess they're just talking about how they're fighting back with AARP. But they did release a new survey focused on these tech support scams. And okay, October's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So I guess that's why they're talking about it. But uh, let's see. So if faced with unsolicited contact from a reputable tech company, 38% of consumers would try to block that company from making contact in the future. I don't know what that means. I mean, what are you going to do? Block the phone number? They're just going to call back from a different one. 33% would look up the issue online. 46% rely on search engines to research tech support scams. None of that means anything to me. But it says that uh, three out of five consumers has been exposed to a tech support scam in the previous 12 months. And... What I've noticed is that I actually followed one of these things, like I got the phone call at work and I wanted to see what they tried to do. And it was pretty wild. The lady had me immediately go to a website that I downloaded some software that would like take over my computer. I didn't get to do all this stuff because obviously I don't want to take over my computer, but I was just kind of listening to what she said and it was very convincing and and just kind of crazy that I see how people can fall for this stuff, especially if you're of a certain generation or of a certain 
age, let's say. I mean, I think the younger kids probably wouldn't fall for it as much as the older people, which is why they're teaming up with AARP to do this. But uh, scammers, according to this Microsoft article, use changing technology and more sophisticated tactics with phishing emails. That's probably the main way. Phony websites and pop-up windows to gain access. And that's the thing. So when you get one of these pop-up windows, it kind of takes over your computer screen. Now, people like, you know, my mom and dad wouldn't really understand how to do like a Control-Alt-Delete or, you know, just a way to figure out how to get around that menu or that window that's taking up their whole screen, right? So they think there's something wrong and they have to call that number. Whereas, you know, someone that's a little bit more tech savvy would just kind of get rid of that screen and, and move on with life. So... Anyway, I just thought that number was really crazy, 11,000 people every single month, but uh, hopefully they'll figure out something with this because it just feels like this is a major problem and they give some tips on how to do this. You know, don't, if you get an unsolicited pop-up message on your device, don't click it, don't call the number. But the reality is, you know, the tough part is that companies are always using new technology to sort of help you get in touch with them. Like, you know, like let's say uh, you're out and about and now the new thing is that banks are texting you when you use your credit card somewhere, right? Let's say you're using your credit card overseas and the first time you use it at a terminal, it like texts you and it says, hey, did you just uh, authorize that charge? And you text back. It says text back yes or no. This happened with me with American Express the other day. And I said, uh, yes, I just used my card there. And, you know, you might think like, okay, well, that's interesting that they're doing that. I never really asked to have that happen. I guess I gave them my phone number at some point. Well, now you think about these scam artists, they take whatever is happening legitimately and they spin it to their benefit, right? So they know that pop-up ads and all these pop-up windows on your computer tell you when something's going wrong. They make theirs look just like it. And that's how they get past people because they're kind of doing stuff that looks similar to what's already happening. And that's how they hook people. Kodak, uh, I think, okay, speaking, I guess we're on the older generation here, but this is really cool. Uh, Kodak, and I'm not sure if this is the way to go about it, but I just love the idea that people are getting hip to digitizing their old stuff. If you watch me on KTLA, you know that I was doing my own digitizing of some of my old videos, and I used uh, my own system. I just bought an Elgato. It was a uh, digital converter kind of thing that you hook up to your computer, to the USB drive. Then you have to hook up like a, a... VCR or a camcorder, pop in your tape, it records it to your computer, and then you can go on with your merry life and throw out the tape and you've got a digitized version of this thing that you can upload somewhere. Well, now Kodak has introduced the Kodak digitizing box, and this is a service where you just dump a whole bunch of media in this box, ship it to them, and they will send it back to you uh, digitally converted. So you can get it on DVDs, you can get it as a digital download, you can get it on a flash drive, and you also get uh, all that stuff. Let's see, do they send back the tapes? I'm guessing they send back the tape. But this is neat because they have four options of service with 19 different types of media that they can convert, including VHS tapes, reel-to-reel audio tape, Super 8, 35 millimeter slides, and picture negatives. So if you think about it, this is a trusted company, which you know obviously is um, Kodak, but Kodak is doing this weird thing nowadays where they just basically use their branding. So they're actually using a, oh, interesting. Okay, that's interesting. So I'm looking at this. I just Googled the AMB Media, right? Which is what they're using to, okay, hold on. This is kind of 
Interesting. So AMB media is what they're using to actually do the digitization. But when I Google that, it comes up as legacy box. So which is legacy box is pretty much the company that does all of the stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So this is basically just a Kodak branded version of legacy box. So that's interesting. So I wonder if the, um, I wonder if the pricing is different. So Legacy Box, let's see the pricing there versus the Kodak. Um, so Legacy Box, let's see, pricing. Uh, let's see, so three-piece starter is $87 to convert up to three tapes. And if you look at the Kodak digitizing box, let's see how much that one is. Um, get started, let's see how much it is. So there's C pricing. So their pricing is three tapes is $69.99. Interesting. So maybe you go with the Kodak one. It's the same thing and you're gonna get it for cheaper. Now I know Legacy Box has a lot of codes out there for discounts, so maybe the Kodak one does not. But anyway, that's it. So my only concern with all these things, I love and I recommend 100%, by the way, that you get your stuff digitized. Very, very important to do that because these tapes are turning into mush. Not so much the film. Maybe, I don't know. I don't have film, but I do have tapes. And I can tell you the VHS tapes are just about gone. So uh, get those things digitized. Some of the other newer ones from the 90s, like the Hi8 and all those kind of tapes, those are still doing pretty well. But just get this stuff digitized. It's so much easier, by the way, to not have a box of this stuff laying around your house, right? That's getting hot. It's getting cold in the different seasons. You probably have it in your garage. Um, it's not being kept at the proper temperatures and storage um, conditions. It should be. So it's basically being abused. And these are your memories. So get this stuff done. You can do it yourself if you want to put the time into it. But again, that's the best way to do it, I feel like, because you can monitor the process, you can watch the process, you can see what happens, but you can also, um, you don't have to let your tapes leave your, your house, right? So you control them at all times. The problem with sending in the legacy box and the Kodak stuff is that, yes, I'm sure 9,000 9, times out of 10,000 times, it's fine, or 9,999 times out of 10,000 times, it's fine, but... The one time that it gets lost in the mail, that's the problem. And if it's your problem, that's a big problem. So if you can find a place locally, now in Los Angeles, where I am, there's a ton of places that will do this. In smaller cities, it's going to be really tough. It's just not one of those things that's a, a huge business. So um, I don't know. I feel like just you got to maybe just send them out a couple at a time. And, and you know, obviously, it's cheaper to do more because, you know, you just they just send you a big box. So if you do... 40 tapes is $1,100, which is, by the way, a ton of money. So uh, you can do it yourself for, for basically unlimited for a lot cheaper. The problem is, and I've talked about this in a previous podcast, is you have to have the device to actually play the tape or the media. And especially with some of these old things, you just don't have that around your house. So it may be worth $1,000 because when I was looking online for a replacement camcorder, they were expensive. People know that, that people want to buy these things to do this. So it's not necessarily cheap um, to digitize this stuff if you're doing it yourself, if you don't have the right equipment. So something to keep in mind. All right, moving on now. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, is back to life as a hologram at the uh, Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. This is a library, uh, his pre presidential library, which I've been to. It's just north of LA. It's kind of out in the valley. And it's kind of a hike, but it's, you know, it's in the LA area. And now they have a hologram 
of Ronald Reagan. This costs $1.5 million. And basically, you're put in this room where a 3D version of Reagan appears on the stage in, in one of three scenes, according to USA Today. He's either riding, uh, speaking from the back of a train during a 1984 tour, um, or he's in his horse riding attire at his California ranch, or he's at the Oval Office after stepping off Marine One, which is the presidential helicopter. So I love this idea. I think that these holograms are becoming more and more realistic looking. And I just did a a story for KTLA on Roy Orbison, who was transformed into a hologram for a new tour that they're doing. So this company that did this one uh, was called Base Hologram. The one that's doing this, Ronald Reagan one, is called Hologram USA. So there's a lot of these competing hologram companies out there because they see this as big business in the future because they can basically bring anyone back. Now, it's not easy. In the case of Reagan, you know, they did a body double that kind of moves and that's, you know, and then they put a a fake head that they had to make a, a model out of. Um, but then they have to get, you know, the original audio. So basically they have to use, they have to match up original audio with new kind of 3d video because just because you have video of someone that's passed away, doesn't mean that it clearly hundred percent matches up to what you need to do to make this thing look realistic. So with the case of Roy Orbison, same thing. It basically used an original recording that he had made, but then they had to recreate kind of everything else, his likeness around that. So um, anyway, but this is this is really interesting. And the other thing I noticed is that these companies are doing, I did a story with another company that was kind of beaming people in, like Tony Robbins is a big believer in this apparently, where he can do a seminar or I guess a conference, whatever he calls them that he does, where he is in, you know, let's say he can be in his house in Beverly Hills and he can be doing a, a live interactive concert or a conference with people in Tokyo, right? So you don't have to travel as much. But to the people in that room in Tokyo, it feels like he's with them for all intents and purposes because he can interact with them. He can look at them. He can talk back and forth with them. That's, you know, obviously with a living person, it makes things a little bit more flexible. But the neat thing about this hologram stuff is that it just keeps getting better and better. And when I saw it in real life, it was pretty amazing. I saw myself up on a screen and I was beamed there live, and that looked really cool. And then I saw the other people, and it's quite convincing because it does look like they're there. Um, and you know it's fake, but or you know it's a, it's a hologram, but it still is pretty cool to see in person. So uh, I'll probably have to check this out at the Reagan Library just to see how, how it looks. But I'm sure the visitors there love it. They get 400000 a year, according to this uh, article I read. Amazon uh, Alexa is um, going to tell you when you're sick. So there's a new patent filing, and I don't really cover patent filings most of the time. I know there's always patent stuff for Apple and what all these companies are working on. So this one makes a lot of sense. Alexa can notice a user's illness by detecting a change in their voice. So apparently uh, if it does, it can suggest medicine or a recipe for chicken noodle soup. Um, This is all according to the Next Web, who looked at the patent. And they can also detect, or the patent wants to be able to detect things like emotional states. So spotting things like happiness, joy, sadness, anger, boredom, and fear. Uh, The user's voice, what it sounds like, if they're sleepy or crying. And what the user is doing by analyzing background noise. So this makes a lot of sense because these personal assistants are, the goal of them is to make them more personal. And the more that they can do that, the better it is for the end user. Now, some of this stuff may sound creepy, like, oh my gosh, Alexa's gonna know that I'm sick? Well, 
I mean, it just makes sense for what Amazon wants to do, which is either sell you stuff or suggest stuff or react in a certain way. I mean, if you're crying and you, you ask Alexa something, you don't want her to have a, a joyful voice in telling you a joke. You want her to, to have some empathy. And just like a real person would, you want them to react to the way that you're sort of feeling. And so that's why they're doing this. And I think that, uh, of course, Google and Siri will do just about the same in the future. But it's just neat to kind of keep track of what they're looking at doing with these systems because I I love these systems. I don't think they're perfect just yet, but I do think that they are uh, getting to a place where they're getting pretty useful to me. And um, when they can, you know, make them kind of basically feel like a person that knows you really well, I think that that's going to be really cool when it comes to those. All right, email came in uh, through my website, richontech.tv. This is from Mark. He says, uh, hey, Rich, I'm traveling to Italy on October 27th. Verizon wants me to wants to charge me $70 to receive calls and data usage. With the time difference, I don't really know if I'll be receiving the calls unless I keep my phone on all night, which I don't want to do. Any recommendations? Um, Mark, most of the wireless companies nowadays do something called a passport or international passport. And I know Verizon and uh, AT&T do this. But it's basically $10 a day. So if you're going to Italy on October 27th, you said $70. I'm guessing you're going for seven days, and that's where they got that number from. But the reality of the way this works is you just tell Verizon that you're traveling and make sure that international passport feature is activated on your account. And any of the days that you use your phone when you're overseas, that's when you get charged at $10. So they don't care if you use one megabyte of data or a bunch of megabytes or a bunch of phone calls, as long as you do something on that day, you're going to trigger that $10 charge. So personally, as someone who's done things both ways where I've had the uh, the hotspot that I've rented, which is cool because you get unlimited data, but I rarely find, I find that those aren't really in use much anymore because so many people are using their regular carrier from home. This is something that's pretty relatively new. It used to be you'd have these crazy roaming charges. Now the companies are just basically saying, hey, for $10 a day, you can use your phone pretty much the way you use it in the US. Now there are some limits on there. You're not gonna get a ton of, um, you know, they will slow down your data if you use over a certain amount each day. I didn't run into any problems though. I did use my phone, um, I think it was in Mexico. Uh, well, in Mexico it was included though. So I think it was in, uh, uh, where did I go last year? Portugal where I used my phone and it was just 10 bucks a day. It was great. Everything worked just fine. And I, I was very impressed and I loved it because it was so convenient. Nobody had to text me at a different number. I didn't have to worry about finding Wi-Fi hotspots. And I, I just say, go for it. Just do the $10 a day and be done with it. And again, if you don't use it one day, if you go a whole 24 hours without using it, then you're fine. And so if you can, if you want to save the money, just make sure your phone is connected to Wi-Fi when possible Um, and you don't really have to think about this too much. And if you do go into data or you do get a couple of calls, you'll get charged at $10. So I say go for it. And, um, I think you'll be fine with that. So good question. Uh, let's see. Joanne emails in on richontech.tv. Uh, let's see. I have a homebound sister, 75 that lives out of state, uh, is the grand pad by consumer cellular, something that is a reasonably priced item. She is unable to use the computer because of back issues and shaking hands. So the grand pad by Consumer Cellular, right, is kind of a tablet for seniors. So um, it's, you know, grand, uh, Consumer Cellular is one of those companies that kind of, um, 
they do all that stuff for like the you know the cell phones that have the big keys and all that good stuff so if we look at this grand pad i guess this started out interesting this looks like they're just in a partnership with consumer cellular so it's it's an it's a device that was actually created for grandparents so it's a it's a tablet um, and they, they kind of built like special things into it. So it's got like, you know, a big kind of, it looks like an Android tablet that has a custom skin on it. So it has simple video chatting. Um, let's see what else you can share photos send send emails, um, popular games, customized music. Now, I don't know. I think that this is going to be too much, you know, like it's, and how much is it? Let's see how much it is. So the device is $200 plus $40 a month. So I guess it has LTE built in. So I'm going to say no. I, I'm sure this is great, but the reality is if they're sending photos, if they're making calls, if they're doing uh, uh, you know, video calls, I feel like you're going to have to have the companion app on the other end. I would recommend maybe just getting a Fire tablet from Amazon. And I think that uh, if you said your sister is at home, she's homebound, so she's not using this out of the house. And so I think that if she has Wi-Fi in her house, she can save $40 a month minimum by going with a Fire HD 10 tablet, which is just 150 bucks. You can get all the apps on there, and they're all universal apps, which means, you know, it's Skype, it's um, Netflix, like all these apps that are actually like kind of the main apps. And maybe with the GrandPad, you can install some of those, but... Um, I'm not sure if you can. I don't see. Let's see. Um, I don't know. The only thing is the the phone number, the dialing, um, and then the wi the wireless. So I don't know. I still think it's a better deal just to go with a regular tablet. I think that's going to be a lot easier, and it's cheaper upfront, and it's cheaper over the monthly time. So um, hope that answers your question. Again, uh, Joanne, thanks for uh, writing in. If you have a question for me, you can email me. It's uh, hello at richontech.tv or just go to my website, richontech.tv and you can submit your question there. I get a lot of these things every day. So I'm not just, uh, I'm just picking out a couple that I got recently, but believe me, I do try to answer all my emails. Um, but it sometimes takes me a couple days to get to them. I'll tell you that because, uh, it's a lot of stuff and you guys are always emailing me about every decision you make. You're, you're asking me before you make it. So I'm happy to help. Just know that uh, sometimes it does take me a bit to get to those, but not always. Sometimes I write back like within a minute and people are like, whoa, what, what was that? I just happen to be looking at my phone and you emailed me and it's a simple question and I can just, you know, uh, pop off an answer really quick. So, all right, finally today, uh, Android police uh, out with the Google Assistant Easter eggs when it comes to Halloween. So last year I was doing this and I tested these things out and uh, my house is filled with all the um, the Google stuff and the Google Assistant. And um, last year I thought one of the commands was pretty cool. It was like, uh, I feel, I think it was like, can we get spooky or something like that. And next thing you know, my entire house, all the lights changed, the Chromecast fired up on the TVs. Um, it started playing spooky music on the Google Homes. So my wife went crazy because I didn't realize this was happening across all my smart devices in every room of the house. So she comes running into my office. She's like, what are you doing? So uh, maybe that one still works and I'll try it. But here are some of the, the commands that you can use for uh, 2018, which are new. So uh, you can ask, are you celebrating Halloween? You can just say, boo. Let's try that one. Oh, wait, I can't. I don't want to say the, uh, the, the word on here because it'll activate all yours. Do you know any scary stories? Happy Halloween. It's almost Halloween. Scare me. 
Trick or treat. What are you going to be for Halloween? What should I wear for Halloween? Uh, do you have any monster fighting tips? I want to hear something spooky. Give me a Halloween sound. Tell me a Halloween joke. Tell me a Halloween fact. So um, all those are fantastic. If you have kids like me that are obsessed with the Google uh, Assistant and getting answers from her, then these will be great. And I always find this stuff kind of fun. This is kind of like the fun side of the assistants. But again, it also shows the problem with these assistants is that you have to know all these specific things to ask to make these little Easter eggs work. And I get it. You, someone might in passing say to their Google Assistant, you know, hey, do you know any uh, scary stories? And they might get one of these responses. In the future, we won't necessarily have to think about commands and responses that are pre-programmed. It'll just be like, you know, this, the point of the assistant is just to be there as an assistant and do stuff no matter how you phrase the question or no matter what you're kind of looking for, you will get it. So um, again, this is from Android Police, uh, spooky Google Assistant Easter eggs uh, just in time. Oh, what, what happened? My phone did uh, activate. I didn't think I said it, but there you have it. So... Um, all right. Thanks so much for listening to the uh, this version of the podcast. Tell me what you think about it. I know it's a lot longer than the typical version, but uh, maybe that's a better thing. I probably won't do something like this every day because it's kind of a deeper dive. But what happens is I check a lot of blogs every single day for stories that I like to talk about. I don't always get to talk about them. Sometimes I talk about them on the radio, on KFI. Sometimes I talk about them on KTLA. Other times I talk about them just on my Facebook page or I'll post them. But this is kind of like a longer deep dive into those stories, the stuff that I find interesting, the stuff that I think you should know about. And whether it's a link to a new app or a website or you know some kind of news that's happening or a review, it's just kind of a bigger um, mix of stories and I can take a little bit more time to dive into them and explain stuff a little bit more. So if you like it, let me know. If not, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how I feel the reaction is to this. So uh, thanks so much for listening. And uh, hopefully if you're not already doing so, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook is at Rich on Tech. Twitter is at Rich Demiro, And Instagram is at Rich on Tech. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Rich Demiro, richontech.tv. I'll talk to you real soon.